last people are dragging in the late ones. Give you all a hard time. Okay, we are in the busy month of October. We've got the uh, picnic this coming Saturday. Stay tuned. Weather should be interesting. We'll see. Hopefully this whole front that's coming through will come through either earlier or later and won't bother us. So uh, stay tuned, though, in case of rain, we may have to cancel if it turns out to be just a rainy day. Also, um, next week on the 17th, on Thursday night, now try to keep this straight. There's two events. One's a teen event. One is an adult, an adult event. The teen event is on Thursday night at Beth Shern on the 17th, and the adult event is here on Sunday night at 6.30. And you want to make sure that you're, all of you who are here are here on Sunday night, but if you uh, know any anybody who's working with uh, teen groups or things like that, I'm having a little trouble getting this to stay in place. Okay. Then... Uh, they can uh, uh, Thursday nights tonight for 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 the teen event over at, over at Bethy Shern. Then the last weekend on October 24th to 22nd is when they're having uh, the DM2 conference at Grace Bible Church. That's Brett Nasworth's uh, group. He is a missionary. He's designed some in sort of intensive type training in different uh, biblical books, studies of biblical books. Uh, a group just returned from Kiev and uh, did this for uh, Jim Meyer students. It's a three-day, all-day intensive, so that's going to cut some people out because you have to uh, you have to work and other things like that. Work just gets in the way of of, of life, you know. That's the way it is. <clears throat> I remember one time someone asked my wife, said, "Do you really like working?" And she said, as opposed to shopping and having lunch with my friends? (laughs) Great response. Okay, that should uh, do it. Also also a reminder on the uh, Operation Shoebox thing with the Franklin Graham uh, ministry for, uh, for Christmas. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Confession simply means to admit or acknowledge something to God. In this case, it's to acknowledge our sins to him, not that we are just sinners, but to identify uh, sins we have committed in the privacy of silent prayer, and God instantly forgives us of those sins and then goes beyond that to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that in fellowship we can walk by means of the Spirit 
and advance in our spiritual life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to and that we have immediate access before your throne of grace because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He, as our high priest, opened the veil, tore the veil, opened it to the Holy of Holies, as it were, so that we might have direct access on the basis of our individual priesthood as believers in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we have this direct access and we can come boldly before your throne of grace, that we can present our uh, supplications and petitions before you. We're thankful for those who come together for prayer meeting on on a Tuesday night to bring before you all of the requests that we have to pray for those who are sick, for those who are in need, those uh, missionaries that we support. And, Father, we do remember uh, to continue to pray for both Jim Myers in Kiev and the work that he's doing there, as well as George Meisinger and his health and the work of Chafer Seminary. Father, we continue to pray for this church and its outreach. We pray for uh, volunteers and leaders to step forward to help with the uh, Good News Club that we hope to begin in another month. And, Father, we know that this is a tremendous opportunity of ministry that you've, been, you've given us the opportunity for. Now, Father, we pray you'd be with us this evening as we study your word and we see the impact of your word in a uh, large metropolitan area of the ancient world and to understand that that same kind of impact continues today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts 19. Acts 19 continues the story of the expansion of the church. This is one of the greatest times of expansion of the Christian church under Paul's ministry. This is a long period of time when he is in Ephesus, which is on the western coast of what is now Turkey, what was then the Roman province of Asia. The Roman province of Asia covered uh, a, the orange area that you see here in this map, which is on the western end of what is today modern, uh, modern Turkey. Uh, on his return from Corinth, uh, Paul had stayed here uh, in Ephesus for about uh, two years to two and a half years, and it is from Ephesus here that he trained men who went out to all of the major uh, towns and cities throughout Asia in order to uh, to take the gospel and to establish many of the churches. Many of the churches are, have letters written to them in the New Testament, Colossians and, uh, of course, Ephesians. Uh, that l- later on we read about the letters to Laodicea and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis that are at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Well, these are founded uh, during this time. Here's a little bit closer map. We see Ephesus is located approximately here where the, I'm not sure how much to scale that is. It's now 40 miles from the water of the Aegean here, but at the time of the first century, the harbor actually came all the way up to Ephesus. It's about 40 miles from the water, and it's all that harbor silted in over the years. And now uh, you go to uh, this area here in order to uh, 
uh, kind of dock if you go in by ship, or you can drive down major highways. Here's uh, uh, is modern Izmir or ancient Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Heropolis, Laodicea, Colossae, Thyatira, Pergamum. All of these are the major uh, uh, areas of population where letters uh, in the New Testament epistles were written or some of the letters at the beginning of the uh, book of, of uh, Revelation was written. In chapter 19, we've studied the arrival of Paul in the first ten verses, his discovery of a group of 12 disciples of John the Baptist who haven't heard about about Jesus in terms of his death, burial, and, and resurrection. They haven't heard about a baptism in the name of Jesus. And so Paul addresses them that they haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit yet. And so they represent Old Testament believers who are just now coming to an understanding of, of the update of Revelation, showing once again the transitional nature of the book of Acts. They understand the gospel in terms of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection by the time we get to uh, <clears throat> verse 5, and then they are baptized immediately in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting we keep running into this phrase, as we'll see in our study this evening, the name of the Lord Jesus mentioned again and again, and that's sort of an idiom that encapsulates everything related to who uh, Jesus is in terms of the person of Christ and the uh, and the work of Christ. Following that, we're told that Paul had a ministry for three months in a synagogue and that during that time he's teaching things related to the kingdom of God. That is, that the Messiah came offering the kingdom as the son of David. The kingdom was rejected. The kingdom was postponed. But God in his grace, because God always precedes judgment with a grace offer, uh, God is giving a second offer of the kingdom to the Jewish people, which, of course, they reject. But nevertheless, it's a real offer. And how it would have worked out, we don't know. But if it wouldn't have worked out differently, it wouldn't have been a real offer. So it's a real offer. And yet they reject uh, Christ, as Jesus as Messiah. And that leads, as it would, not only to the inevitability, which was already there, of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but it, it then leads into the establishment, the further establishment of the church in the church age. Uh, we see evidence uh, that we see throughout the New Testament that when the, the gospel of the kingdom is the focal point, then there is an associated emphasis on signs and wonders and miracles because they attest not only to the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah, but also the credentials of his messengers, the disciples in the Gospels, who become the apostles in Acts and in the in the epistles. And part of that, uh, the miracles that were performed were casting out demons. And so Paul is casting out demons. I pointed out last time that the only time we see a rise of demonic activity emphasized in Scripture is during two periods of time. Uh, one is during the period of the incarnation, the period of the life of Christ in the Gospels, and the second is during the period of Acts. And then the second period, that's all part of the same time frame, basically, and the second time is in the tribulation period. 
But remember the tribulation period, that seven-year period that relates to what is described as Daniel's 70th week. Literally in Daniel 9, uh, 23 and following, it's the 70 periods of sevens. That last seven-year period there is related to God's timetable for Israel. And so there's a shift back. That is the forerunner of the birth of the kingdom, which occurs when Jesus returns at the second coming. And when he returns at the second coming, he establishes his kingdom. So during that time, there's going to be signs and wonders. The uh, Antichrist is going to uh, emphasize, as Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2, lying signs and wonders. But then there are going to be true miracles performed uh, during that time as well. But that's not related to the church age. It's a separate dispensation. So, uh, but we do see that. We see the uh, emphasis on the demonic, demon possession, things of that nature during that future time. But in the course of these events, there's the humorous e- episode I ended with last time where you have these Jewish magicians, these Jewish exorcists who are using uh, incantations and spells and basic uh, uh, non-biblical ways to try to uh, rescue people from uh, demon possession, and it's and they they it was typical in their methodology at the time to try to get the demon's name. You have the same kind of thing happen in some churches today that think that demon possession is still an issue. I find it interesting that churches that are confused over this seem to find a lot of people in their churches that are demon possessed, whereas churches that that don't find this, don't find anybody that's got a problem with a demon. Uh, it's uh, And it's because they're just confused about it, and they blame it. And it's real easy for people to, to do what Flip Wilson made light of back in the 70s, that the devil made me do it. And so it's easier to say it's the devil's fault, and I've got a demon of this or a demon of that or a demon of gluttony or a demon of alcoholism, of a demon of laziness. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Blame it on a demon. And the Bible never has that kind of uh, information, and it never approaches uh, the demonic that way. But anyway, in this particular case, these seven sons of Sceva are um, sort of uh, trading or merchandising their Jewish background and possibly a priestly background, and they're trading on that to to play on the gullibility of, of people that they can cast out demons, and all of a sudden they see the genuine thing happening with the Apostle Paul, and he's doing it, and he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, I pointed out last time, and always remember this, that in this episode, the word that's used is exorchizo, meaning an exorcism, and that word exorcism is only used of pagan practices. It's never used of what Jesus and the disciples did. The word that's used in describing their work is ekbalo, meaning to cast out. And it draws, the scriptures draw this very strong contrast between the work of God in the miraculous and the work of charlatans and or maybe Satan in the demonic in pagan, uh, pagan practices. And so these seven sons of Sceva hear Paul say, uh, command the demon to leave in the name of Jesus, and they say, hey, that's a pretty neat deal. Maybe we can play on that. So they decide to cast out, uh, try to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, and the demon just says, who in the world are you? I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know who you guys are. And then he beats them up, uh, 
and and strips all their clothes off and, and they they have to run naked through the streets and so it's a great embarrassment and great great deal of laughter but the word spread around and so people heard about this and this is where we come when we get to about verse 17 verse where we're starting tonight verse 17 this that's what it's describing is this event where the sons of Sceva have been embarrassed by the demon and they've been running naked through the streets because the demon uh, beat up on them. And so now uh, the word has spread throughout the ancient world, and word's going to spread beyond Ephesus. And I want you to remember that as Paul left on his second missionary journey and he arrived in Greece and he went to Philippi and he went to Thessalonica, word had already spread before him about the miracles that had been performed in uh, Asia Minor when he was in Galatia, Lystra, uh, Iconium, and Derby, and that they were considered to be troublemakers. And in the Jewish community, this this word had traveled quickly. So, so and the reason I make that point is because when we get into passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 21, and 22, where the focus here is on the problem of of tongue speaking in in the church. Now, tongues was a legitimate spiritual gift, but it didn't mean speaking in ecstatic utterance, in some sort of um, just gibberish. It meant speaking a language. The word glossa is always used of, of speaking in a uh, a known language. Every now and then you find somebody who says, well, you know, it, it means ecstatic utterance. Go look it up in the in the lexicon. Well, the only place in the lexicon that says it could mean uh uh, ecstatic utterances in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and you're using the passage you're trying to investigate to prove your answer, and that's just poor logic, and and it, 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 it shouldn't be that way. And I've never found outside of the Bible, outside of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and years ago I did some massive investigation going through every use in known ancient Greek literature of the word glossa, because <clears throat> I was trying to prove something, and <clears throat> proved the other the other side, and I never found a single example where glossa was used. And you had ecstatic utterance in the ancient world. You had uh, it had happened at Delphi with the uh, uh, Oracle of Delphi and the and the Pythian uh, priestess there, but it's never described with that word glossa. So you had in the mystery religions you had this practice of ecstatic utterance, but it wasn't ever referred to as speaking in. Glossa, speaking in languages. And so there's a problem in Corinth because they, they're hearing about this spiritual gift of languages and they're confusing it with what they've seen in their pagan practices with this kind of mystical, ecstatic utterance, and they're trying to blend it together. And Paul corrects them on that and, that and their usage of this in 1 Corinthians 14. And right in the middle of his discussion on that in 1 Corinthians 14, he gives us the biblical or divine purpose for tongues. And this is not only true for tongues, because as we'll see in this passage, it said that tongues was a sign, but there were certain gifts that were sign gifts, as I've mentioned the last few weeks. They signified something, that something different was happening, and it was uh, healing, uh, casting out demons, and speaking in tongues. These were sign, sign gifts, the performance of miracles and healing and casting out demons, speaking in tongues were all said to be signs. And they're signs of what? They're signs that the kingdom 
is present in the person of the king and the kingdom offer is present and that once that is completely rescinded then these sign gifts were retracted now 1 Corinthians 14:21 tells us that in the law just and there's a use of the word law uh, Torah that relates to the entire Old Testament specifically Isaiah here uh, in Isaiah 20, 11 to 14, specifically Isaiah 28, 11. In the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to these, this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. So the Lord is speaking. He says that he's going to speak, he's going to communicate to his people Israel via the Gentile languages, and in the context it's talking about the impending Assyrian invasion, that that the Israelites would hear Gentile languages in the in the uh, on the temple grounds. This was a sign of judgment. It was predicted in Deuteronomy. It is fulfilled not only in the ancient world when uh, Israel was overrun by the Assyrians in the northern kingdom in 722, but the southern kingdom in 586, and then it will happen again by by uh, AD 70. So hearing, especially revelation, hearing any the teaching of the scriptures of God in a Gentile language is, is a sign that judgment is coming. And so that, that's the function of tongues. And that's where Paul, why Paul says in verse 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe. Now, the sign, according to the context of Isaiah 28:11, who's it assigned to? Gentiles or Jews? Jews. So, so when Paul says contextually, therefore tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, is he thinking in terms of Jews or Gentiles? He doesn't say, but we can infer from the context of Isaiah 28 that th- he's talking about it's a sign for the Jews. Not just for anybody, because Gentiles have no background. They, they have no clue what's going on as Gentile unbelievers. But Jews should, because they were given the Old Testament. So therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. This was why tongues was not really to be practiced in the church, was because the church is supposed to be a meeting place of believers. That's something lost in our culture today. It was lo- it's been lost in e- American evangelicalism for a number of years. They think that Sunday morning is the time to evangelize people, whereas the meeting of the church, according to Scripture, is for the edification of believers, not the evangelism of the unsaved. And so the purpose for the meeting of believers is to equip saints to evangelize the unsaved, and then they go out to their jobs and their neighborhoods and their communities and their friends and their family, and they evangelize them and then bring them to church in order to get trained. They don't go out and try to recruit people to come to church so the pastor can save them. That is, that, that, that's, that's completely backwards. That's not biblical, and that's not the function of the church, but... About 90% of Christians are ignorant of that because about 98% of pastors are ignorant of that. The church is not, the meeting of the church is not for the purpose of evangelizing the lost. Although the gospel should always be presented 
when, and I try to do that whenever I, whenever I can. I know that there are, uh, I've been, been <clears throat> positively impressed by three or four pastors in my life, uh, whom, that whenever a camera, whenever a microphone got put in front of them, whenever they taught, they always managed to explain the gospel, even if it was only in two sentences because that was their opportunity to get the gospel out. And a pastor should always uh, focus on that and try to, so that if anybody ever listens to him, no matter who they are, it may be the only time they do hear the Bible, they can hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and by believing in him alone, you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So tongues are for a sign. Now the reason I'm pointing that out is because what's happening here is a good example of how people everywhere, Jew and Gentile, heard what had happened with these these um, so-called exorcists, these these uh, fraudulent exorcists, and it became a testimony to all of the Jews and to all of the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. They didn't even have to be a personal witness of it to have heard about it. And, and, and the point that I'm making from 1 Corinthians 14 is 1 Corinthians 14 is saying tongues are a sign. You don't have to be present. If you hear about it, you heard about it. You, you, were, you heard the evidence. You don't have to be a personal witness as long as you heard what had happened. And so that, that was, was uh, very much uh, important. Now, we read in verse 17 that this became known to all the Jews and Gentiles dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord, there we run into that phrase, the name of the Lord again, the name of the Lord was magnified. And there are many passages that this is used in throughout Acts, and I just put uh, three up here on the, on the uh, slide, that in, in uh, Peter's initial sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, it shall some to come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does the name of the Lord mean? Is that just just using it as a label, or does it mean something? And see, a lot of times in our culture, we think of the name of something as, as something sort of divorced from its essence. And, uh, and yet in Scripture, the name indicates the character and the quality of what it names. And so here in, in the Scriptures, believing on the name of Jesus means believing in who he is and what he did. It's not just believing in a, in, a, in a label or some kind of nomenclature. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So that at the time of baptism, it is identification with Christ, and, and in the name of Christ means identification with his person and his work. Uh, of course, in Acts 4.12, a verse where you're, you're familiar with, there's salvation in no other, for there is no other name uh, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Again, that's representing his person and his work, all bundled up in that concept of the name of, the name of Jesus. Now, as we look at this, we come to a result. Now, I want you to pay attention. Some of you have been coming on, on Sunday night for our Bible study methods class. There are three basic parts to Bible study, observation, interpretation, and application. Observation asks the question, what do I see? What's being said? What are the details of the passage? 
And, and as I pointed out in our class the other night, the more time you spend on that, the more accurate your interpretation is going to be. Interpretation answers the question, what does this mean? And there's only one interpretation. Any document only has one meaning, that's, and that's a sing, indicated as a single meaning of the text. It only means one thing, and it means what the author intended it to mean. Uh, we haven't gotten into that yet, but meaning comes from 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 the authorial intent or the one who caused something to happen. And then uh, application means that once you understand the significance of something, it should have an impact on changing your thinking and changing the way you live. And what we see depicted here is that people had observed something. We see observation. They saw what had happened in terms of the miracles that were performed with Paul, the fact that even when people touched his uh, sweat cloths and his uh, aprons that he wore when he was working on, on uh, as a tent maker, that they were healed, because not because they had a magical quality in them, but because they were trusting in the power behind Paul. It wasn't Paul that did it. That's, it, that's emphasized, as I pointed out last time, that God worked through him. It's not Paul. It's the divine power, the power of God. And then they witnessed what happened with these uh, Jewish evangelists. So what we have is, is people observing something, and once they observed it, they could come up with basically one of two interpretations. One is God is working through Paul. God is validating what Paul is teaching. Therefore, what Paul is teaching is true, and Jesus is unique, and he is the Savior of the world. He is the Old Testament prophesied Messiah, and we must believe in him. That's option one. Option two would be, it's it just another magical trick. I don't believe it. Just the, the cynical, skeptical response that I don't care. I don't know what the trick is. I can't explain it, but I'm not going to believe it. It's not what it is. So those are your two basic interpretive options. Well, the people who understood what was going on had observed it and believed that this was God working through Paul and believed Paul's message. It didn't just stop there. It wasn't just, wow, that's a great thing that's happened. What a historically unique event. Look at this. God has has penetrated into human history, and, and these miracles are being performed. Isn't that great? See, it didn't just stop with that. It didn't stop with sort of an academic awareness or an academic knowledge. It changed them. It changed their thinking and it changed their behavior. And as a result of their changed behavior, it had an economic consequence in the culture. See, what changes a culture isn't going out and marching on Washington, D.C. I think that in our culture, because it's set up differently, there is a time and a place to be actively involved in the political process. But we dare not forget that the real issue is a change in hearts and minds, and without a change in hearts and minds, the rest is just, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, it's just polishing brass on a sinking ship. And, and uh, it ultimately doesn't do any good. What transformed the culture of Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth and Rome and, and Western Europe 
was that when people heard the gospel, they believed it, and it changed their behavior. And that's what we see happening here in verse 18. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. They understood that this was truth. Now, people today have a problem. From the get-go, they don't believe there's absolute truth. They believe that what's true for you is true for you, and I'm glad it works for you. But don't invade my space with your truth. But in the ancient world, they, they still believed that there was absolute truth. They may debate over what it was, just like in much of Western civilization, there were debates over what that unifying absolute truth was. But they, most people up until about 150 years ago believed there was an, abs, an absolute truth that was true for everybody, whether you were Arab or Indian or Asian or American uh, Indian or European or whatever you were, there was an absolute truth that was true for everybody. And when that truth got into your soul, it changed the way you live. So this verse says, many who had believed, it is a participle describing a group of people. Some, literally it should be translated, some of those who believed, or many of those who believed. It is talk, it's not talking about everybody who believed, because not everybody who believed was, was armpit deep in the occult. But many of them were because that was part of their culture. It was very much a superstitious culture, believed in a lot of, a lot of different, uh, m- mystical, magical things. And so Luke says, many who, of those who had believed, it's a perfect tense indicated, it's a completed action in the past that's continuing into the present. Now this could be translated uh, a couple of different ways. One of them would be many of those who had belief where it's simply emphasizing the past completed action. Or it could be translated many of those who were believers emphasizing their present condition as a result of past action. Now either one, uh, there's not a lot of difference between the two, but it's, I think it's emphasizing of those who had believed in the past, it's clearly there, they were already believers, when they see what happens with these seven sons of Sceva, suddenly they realize that what they had relied upon to make life work, what they had depended upon to make life work in terms of all their little superstitious uh, rabbit's foots and good luck charms and all the mystical incantations that they had, and they would wear amulets around their wrists or around their necks with these magical incantations, and they would rely upon these to keep the evil eye away or to uh, keep them from getting sick or to keep demons away and all these different things. They realized that, that all of this was completely and totally wrong and contrary to what Paul was teaching, contrary to the truth uh, of the Scripture. And so those who had believed uh, came... And here we have an interesting tense. It's an imperfect tense, and it's not talking about that they were individually co- continually coming, but that they were uh, individually coming at different times. Uh, the imperfect tense usually portrays some sort of dramatic, continuous activity, and grammarians would call this a distributive, iterative, imperfect Two new words for you to think about. A distributive means that it's it's not just one person, but it's distributed over a 
a group of people, a bunch of different people. Uh, so it's a distributed activity. Iterative means that they're coming at different times. So they didn't all come at once. But today, one would come tonight, another would come tomorrow, another would come. They weren't just having a, a tent revival where everybody would come forward down the aisle and lay it all on the altar and then go out and burn all the books. That's not what's being depicted here, that individuals were coming under uh, the genuine conviction of God the Holy Spirit at different times over the course of several days. And as they did that, when they would come to the and it doesn't say they came confessing, but it doesn't say where. But it's most likely we can infer this at the meeting of the local church, and they would come, and then they would they would admit that that you know I got sucked up into all of that occult stuff as well, and they would come confessing, and confession simply means, and here it's not the word homologeo, it's a compound word, ex homologeo. Homologeo is a word we're familiar with in First John one nine, if we confess our sins. But here it, it adds that prefix, and here the word may or may not involve a public uh, profession or a public confession of something or public admission, but we know that it does because the next word telling is from the uh, root verb angelizo, which has to do with telling or explaining something. And so they many who had believed came over a period of, of weeks probably uh, admitting uh, to others in the church, not from a sense of guilt, but but it more of a sense of wonderment that that wow, can you believe what happened? Uh, you know, that just showed me how false everything is that 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 we had given our lives over to, and I'm just I'm just getting clearing out everything related to that uh, former life before before we were were saved. And we have the same word for confession as public confession several places, like Romans fourteen eleven. Every tongue shall confess to God. This is uh, ex, uh, this is probably an eschatological in the future. Uh, Romans fifteen nine, uh, quoting from the Old Testament. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles. It's a public confession idea. Philippians two eleven is also a public confession that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So, it's it, but it's not always public. Sometimes it's private. It, context is going to tell you what what the circumstances are, what the situation is. But not only did they come within the meeting of the local church and say and express the the the, the shock and awe, as it were, of what had happened and the impact it had on their lives, and they were getting, you know, they were cleaning house, as it were. Uh, they were changing the way they lived and getting rid of all of these uh, things that they had been attached to as unbelievers. Uh, but but they went further than that. A lot of this was valuable. Verse 19 tells us also many of those who had practiced uh, magic brought, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, this wasn't something that they were told to do. This isn't the kind of book burning you get from some kind of a uh, radical fundies or the kind of book burning that Stalin conducted in, in Russia or, or Hitler conducted in Germany where it's people are trying to control the thinking of people so that they can't have a free access to information. This was something that was spontaneous 
spontaneously generated from the changed life of the people. They, they saw that there was no value in this anymore, and so they said, well, let's just bring all of our stuff together. We're getting rid of it. We don't want to have a garage sale or a yard sale or a tag sale or whatever you want to call it and go sell it to all the neighbors. We need to get rid of this stuff. And so they brought everything together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, the, uh, just a little background on the language here. Those who had practiced magic is a combination of the word proso, which means to practice something. It's not just the Greek word poieo, which is something you can do once or twice, but this indicates something they did on a regular basis, something that was very much part of their life. And then the other word is really kind of an interesting, uh, interesting word. It's the word uh, uh, periergos, which has as its root, I was doing research on this today, it has as its root the idea of uh, meddling in somebody, uh, gossiping, being um, uh, a busybody, getting involved in other people's lives. And um, it's a very old word in, in Greek and originally had the idea about somebody who just uh, was a busybody, talked about all the little trivial details going on in other people's lives, and from that, it began to develop the idea of somebody who was overly curious. And so then this kind of a person was somebody who was curious about magical things and mystical things and metaphysical things. And so it picked up a technical sense of the idea of some sort of uh, relationship to, to magic. And <clears throat> there's a group of papyri that have been discovered uh, archaeologically uh, which talks about slips of parchment that had various symbols or magical sen- sentences written on them, and they were called the Ephesia Grammatica, the, from Ephesus, the Ephesia Grammatica. And these little pieces of papyri were then worn as amulets, amulets or magical charms that would help deflect evil spirits and give people uh, health and good luck and things, uh, things of that nature. So people were in Ephesus were really immersed in this. Now we didn't see this kind of activity in Corinth. We didn't see this kind of activity in Athens. But it's it, it shows that different cultures in different places have different issues. And if Paul had gone to Ephesus talking to them like he had talked to the Athenians it would have been a very different scenario. You have to know your audience, just like Sun Tsa recommended in uh, in The Art of War, is you have to know your enemy. You have to know your audience. You have to talk to the person you're talking to. Too many people in evangelism just memorize the four spiritual laws and immediately shoot those people like they're firing a, a machine gun, and then they go away feeling self-satisfied that they evangelized somebody and they didn't do anything at all except create problems. You have to understand your audience and address the gospel and target it and package it, as it were, shape it to your audience to help them answer the issues in their life, not somebody else's life. And so here you had this emphasis in uh, magic, and so it's countered by a true, genuine emphasis on the miracles and the signs and wonders and healing and casting out of demons from the Apostle Paul, 
which countered the false or lying signs and wonders that were predominant because of the demonism and idolatry in, in Ephesus. What's the result? See, it wasn't just observation. It wasn't just an academic interpretation. It changed their life overtly with the result that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Growing mightily indicates it had it changed people. And it stayed that way. Prevailing has to do with the fact that it it continued, it persevered, and people's lives changed. It wasn't just one of these things where they went off to camp and they had a mountaintop experience and came back all energized, and a week later they're back doing the same old thing. The Bible teaches that our lives can truly change on the basis of God's Word. And a lot of people doubt that. They look at how, and looking at a lot of Christians, you think, well, God's Word really doesn't help them change because they, they don't really understand it. They really haven't had an impact, uh, impacted study of the Word, and so they just kind of brush it off. It's, they've got a lot of intellectual knowledge, but it doesn't change their life. But this not only changes their life, but it comes along and changes the culture in, in a dramatic way. But before we get to that, there's a little interlude in the narrative in verses... Uh, um, 21, uh, 21 down through 22. And it's just talking about what's going on in terms of Paul's travel plans. Verse 21 says, When these things were accomplished, so after these things had happened, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Now pay attention to this. I'm not going to get into a study of this issue tonight, probably not next week either, but in the coming weeks we're going to get into this particular issue and... Uh, it's important to pay attention as we go through these clues. This is the first time it addresses this. Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. So he's thinking about doing some follow-up, and he's going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, go back to Greece. That would be the third missionary journey. He purposes to go to Jerusalem. It's not just Paul's decision, though. Notice he purposes in the Spirit. He's making his plans following the leading of God the Holy Spirit. He purposes by means of the Spirit. Now, later on, people get the idea because the Spirit warns Paul about all of the uh, uh, things that are going to happen, that he's going to be bound, he's going to be put into chains, he's going to suffer, and all these things. And there's even a passage that seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit tells him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, we, we, we've got to investigate this because this passage makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is leading him to go to Jerusalem. So how are we going to understand that? Well, we'll address that as we go forward. But here it's very clear, the language is, is very clear, that Paul is planning under the, under the leading of the Spirit, under the filling of the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem before he goes to Rome. And so this is just sort of a preview of coming attractions because that will take up much of the rest of the book of Acts. Verse 22, as part of this plan, he sent into Macedonia 
two of those who have been working with him, and he sends them there. This is a Greek word, apostello, from where we get the noun apostle, but it shows again that there are some people who are sent by Jesus, and those are the apostles with the capital A, and others are sent by local churches or they're sent by Paul, and they're not, they don't have the gift of apostleship, and they're not uh, apostles like Peter, Paul, and the, and the others. So he sends into Macedonia two of those who have been ministered to him. This is the same word that we've run into before, uh, dikaiao, which has to do like deacon, diakoneo rather, diakoneo, which is like a deacon. Uh, we, that's where the noun comes from. It really just means to serve somebody. So this is part of this entourage that travels with Paul and takes care of a lot of the logistical issues in his life so that he can focus on studying and teaching the word. And it's also made up of young men who want to be pastors. I think this really presents a biblical model for pastoral training, is that as God brings young men into a pastor's sphere of influence, he needs to help train them, give them responsibility so that he can oversee that, oversee their seminary training and their education so that he can guide and direct them and mature them to the point where they can eventually take on the responsibilities of being a pastor. And Paul does this with several others. Two that are listed here are Timothy and Erastus. Timothy we've met before. His mother was Jewish. His grandmother was Jewish. They taught him the scriptures from the time he was a boy. Uh, His father was a Gentile. And when Paul came to uh, Lystra and Derby, where he was from, uh, the family responded to the gospel, and they trusted in Jesus as Messiah. Then when Paul came back on the beginning of the second missionary journey, he decided to take Timothy with him because he had grown and matured so much in the Lord in just a short time between the first and second missionary journey. Now, Erastus is a new individual that we haven't uh, studied about. There's an identification of a man named Erastus that was in uh Corinth. And here is a uh, depiction of this inscription in rock. Uh, This man was the director of public works in Corinth. Paul was in Corinth before he came to Ephesus. And it's possible, we can't say for sure, because Erastus was a somewhat common name in the ancient world, but it's possible that this Erastus is the Erastus who uh, became a believer. He was a uh, 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 the director of the public works system in Corinth, and it's very possible that he could have joined Paul. It may not be him at all. It's not. Uh, it's not positive. The only there's only a couple of places where he's mentioned. He's mentioned. Uh, an Erastus is mentioned here in Acts 19:22. An Erastus is mentioned in Second Timothy 4:20. Paul mentions that he left him behind in Corinth, so it's very likely the same person who originated from Corinth. And uh, and then there's the mention of the one uh, in Corinth. And so it's very likely that as, uh, as if, if that's the same person, then as he was stirred up by the Word of God in his life, he decided that perhaps he had a leadership gift or a communication gift, at the very least, he wanted to learn more and do more, and so he attached himself to the Apostle Paul, left his home in Corinth, and began to travel uh, with Paul on his second missionary journey. Now we come to the stage of opposition, stage of opposition that occurs 
in Ephesus. Now, this covers a long section, and it's mostly narrative, so we can cover it fairly rapidly. The, there's not a, a lot of in-depth uh, analysis that needs to go on here. It tells a story of a riot that occurs, and it, there are a lot of lessons that can be learned here in terms of rioting, in terms of the public lie, in terms of how people react to the truth, and this is another example of how those who reject Christianity suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.19. They don't want the truth, and so they're going to come up with an alternate uh, alternative narrative, and they're going to react because when the Bible takes a hold of people and changes the way they think and change the way they live, it's going to have an economic consequence. On the other hand, if people reject the Bible, it has another kind of consequence. Just think with me about what has happened economically in many communities and ethnic groups in this country as a result of uh, of the loss of absolutes in relationship to the family and marriage, the ease of divorce, and the licentious attitude towards adultery. And as a result, you have uh, numerous women who have multiple children uh, out of wedlock. Uh, they don't have a father in their life at all, and so the children grow up in many ways confused, in many ways without any kind of a, a stability in the home. There's uh, enormous financial consequences to the nation because uh, we end up paying for all of their all of their mistakes, and so uh, many people end up. Uh, being excessively taxed in order to take care of, of, of these poor because of a lot of sloppy attitudes that are part, part of our uh, socialist, uh, pseudo-compassionate culture. But all of that is because of a breakdown in the basic divine institutions related to marriage and the family. And once we give up marriage between one man and one woman, the family breaks down. And once the family breaks down, then the culture breaks down. And, and in order to try to maintain some sort of semblance of stability, we end up throwing enormous amounts of money at it in order to maintain a semblance that we're just as, as, um, we're just as stable and as prosperous as we were 30 or 40 years ago. And we are, but, but at the expense of both parents now working 60, 70 hours a week, whereas 40 or 50 years ago, the father only needed to work 40 hours a week. In fact, even somebody as culturally blind and as biblically errant as a former president of the United States named Jimmy Carter is, he made a statement in a uh, speech yesterday in San Francisco that uh, the, the middle class is in worse shape economically today than the poor were back in the 70s. And that's saying a lot for Jimmy Carter because the poor in the 70s were poor because of his outrageous economic policies that gave us uh, inflation that was double-digit. Remember those wonderful days of getting a home loan with a 14 15% mortgage? and running uh, 15 16% inflation thanks to uh, his horrible socialist Democrat policies. But see, that's what happens when a culture runs amok and they've rejected biblical truth. It just starts to come apart at the seams. And now they're feeling this impact uh, in, in Ephesus because there's a, it's the center of a religious system. And as part of that religious system, which is the worship of Diana, as her name is translated in the New King James and King James Version, 
But in Ephesus, her name was uh, was the Greek name Artemis. Diana was how this goddess was known in the um, in the ancient world uh, in the in the Roman uh, mythological system and in the Greek mythological system. She was known as Artemis. But the Artemis of the Ephesians is not the same as Diana, the goddess of the hunt. That was how she was depicted primarily in in both Rome and in Greece. But once Diana sort of jumped the Aegean and lands over in the uh, area of what was known as Anatolia or, 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 or Turkey, she begins. They, they begin to syncretize or mix ideas, and she sort of gets blended with ideas related to this fertility goddess in Anatolia by the name of Sibylle. And so she takes on not just the idea of being the huntress, uh, but also she's the, she is the goddess of fertility. And so the major center in, in, um, in, in this area of the world for the worship of Artemis was in this enormous temple that they had constructed for her in, in Ephesus. And the legend was that, um, that, that this, this, uh, that, that this, this stone had fallen from heaven. Uh, to indicate where the temple would be built. Now, there's not much left of this temple. This shows uh, a slide showing the remains of the uh, temple or the ruins of the temple, and there's one column uh, that is left standing. But this temple was so grand in the ancient world that it was considered one of the seven wonders uh, of the ancient world. It was first built in the mid-6th century uh, BC, and it was 190 feet wide and had approximately 106 uh, columns, and each of these were, were highly decorated. Now, uh, um, Artemis was an odd-looking uh, goddess because they are trying to depict the fact that she is this uh, uh, fertility goddess and that she is... Uh, the source of fertility, and so this is how she looked. And what we've, we've, we haven't found any silver images, probably because silver had value and they were melted down, but a number of clay images and, and wood images of her and ivory images like this one have been, uh, have been dis- discovered. She was a tremendously popular deity throughout the ancient world. Her worship spread because her worship centers upon sex. And people would come to the uh, temple and they would engage in sex with the temple prostitutes. And that, of course, made it extremely popular. Uh, she's usually depicted in this way with somewhat stiff body. It's almost like uh, the, in the, the body in the shape of a corpse in a sarcophagus with a uh, stiff, uh, stiff, long body uh, with the legs close together in, in mummy fashion. The upper half of the front torso is covered with these globules or these perturbances that resemble human breasts, and so sometimes she's called the many-breasted goddess. But there's an alternate view that these are uh, uh, testes sacks from bulls, which, of course, is also a fertility image, and there's a lot of debate among scholars as to exactly what that what that is. But the bottom line is both of them are symbols of uh, fertility. She had a necklace of uh, acorns uh, for, for, because the oak tree was also sacred to her, 
and she had on her breastplate the signs of the zodiac, and then there are various uh, animals that are usually depicted with her and uh, various other things. She wears a crown that often is uh, has something uh, that's uh, carved in the top with the turrets representing the walls of the city of, uh, of Ephesus. So this... Uh, uh, the, the temple is constructed here on the site of where this meteor fell, which is where they built the temple. Now, this is just a, an overview of the, the city of Ephesus. It's, it's, if you've never been there, it's, one of the, it's probably the largest archaeological site in the biblical world. It's enormous. And um, a lot of what's there today came in in the later second, later first century, second century, third century. wasn't there when when Paul was there. But the harbor, as you see here, came up very close. Then there's the uh, Arcadian Way that you follow that goes straight into the theater. This is where the riot occurred, and that theater would hold could hold up to twenty five thousand people. It is just enormous and is perfectly constructed uh, for acoustics. And I have stood in the sweet spot on the stage with my wife up in the stands, uh, very high up, and you'll see from the pictures, and you sent her all the way up to the top, and I would just talk in a normal voice, and she could hear me just fine, and I would try to get softer and softer, but you could hear it because it's just perfect, uh, perfectly built. Uh, you had the uh, temple of, uh, I think the temple for uh, for. Artemis was up this way off of this particular uh, chart. Here's another bird's eye view here. Uh, this is where the water came up like this. Okay, so all this flat plain out here was once underwater and was silted in. And then down in this area is where you have the, uh, uh, where you had the, the, Here's the temple of the, uh, where, where do we see it here? Uh, over in that area, it's right off the screen here on the left would be where you have the, the theater. So here was the area of the temple of, of uh, Artemis. And then the St. John's Basilica, St. John's Church, this is allegedly where the Apostle John is, is buried as well. And here's an aerial shot of the theater where this riot takes place. And then as you go down this uh, walkway or road here, this is what took you down to the harbor. So this is this is where the harbor would have run coming out here, and then this is the uh, main walkway down from the uh, theater itself. This gives you a little information uh, about the theater and shows you a little diagram down here in the lower right. This is the size of the scale drawing of the theater next to Wrigley Field. And so the Wrigley Field would have a seating capacity of 41,000, and the seating capacity of the theater in Ephesus had a capacity of 25,000. It's enormous. And so it's filled as a result of this riot uh, that occurs. Here's a couple of other uh, pictures that you see just to give you a little bit of an overview of what this area was like. So let's just read about it a little bit. So Dionysius, who's probably the head of the guild of the silversmiths, comes out, and 
He's all upset because they're losing profits. As people are becoming Christians, they're not buying the little silver shrines. They're not going into the temple of Artemis to worship anymore. It changes the economic dynamics of the culture, and so they're going to riot. They're like a lot of folks in our country. If you don't do things the way we want you to do them economically, we're going to force you to. And so that's what they, they want to do. And so he calls out all the workers. And in verse 25, he says, Men, you know that we've, we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods that are made with hands. So see, the, 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 there's an economic impact to the gospel and a cultural impact. And then he says in verse 27, So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. Remember, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's not quite like the Astrodome, but, um, which was supposedly an eighth wonder of the modern world, but it's a, it, it was magnificent. They don't want this torn down. This is their, their culture is at stake. So they're having a huge culture war. And uh, then in verse 28, he goes, it's, uh, Luke says, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath, and they cry. So he stirs them all up and gets an emotional reaction, and they just start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the whole crowd gets worked up to where they're, they, they're, they, 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 they just lose control. Verse 29 says, The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, and they seize Gaius and Aristarchus, who are Macedonians, traveling companions. So these are two Christians. Later on, we're going to see they're really confused because they get a couple of Jews out there, and they're blaming the Jews too. So they don't really understand the difference between Christians and Jews. And Paul wants to go speak to them, and he's held back. That's what verses 30 and 31 describe. And verse 32 comes back to describing the mob scene. Uh, some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Trust me, when you have a million-man march on Washington, D.C., I don't care whether they're... Well, probably the conservatives know why they're there, but the liberals don't have a clue. Uh, most people don't. And, and most controversies, like, like in the controversy we're going through right now over the debt crisis, I would suggest that 2% of the people... Probably on one side know what's going on, 2% on the other side know what's going on. The rest of them, the other 96% in this country, don't have a clue. That's how it is in most controversies, and it's been true throughout, throughout the ages. Most people are too busy living their lives to be aware of what the, what the issues are, and all they do is emote, and that's what's going on here. And in verse... Um, Verse 33, we read, They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all of a sudden they started chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Finally, the city clerk comes forward. When the city clerk comes forward, this is, very, this is another example of how Luke tells a story that, that rings true historically. He starts to calm them down, and he basically says everything must be done according to law and according to our standards and according to our culture. And while it is true that some of these things, these charges that have been brought uh, can't be denied, he says you can't go about it the wrong way. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Uh, you, you must do it quietly and in order, 
And so uh, if these men have done something wrong, then you must bring them up on charges. That's in verse 38. And then in verse 39, he says, But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we're in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. In other words, the Romans are going to come and uh, discipline us if we don't mind our own business. And when he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So he calms everybody down and everybody went home. What's the point? The point that Luke is making is the gospel changes people, it changes culture, it changes economics. When people get away from the gospel, the same thing happens. It destroys a culture, it destroys economics, it destroys the family, it destroys individuals' lives. The only hope that we have of stability is a return to the scripture, a return to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without that, there is no hope. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these things this evening, to be reminded of the great power that is in the gospel, uh, that it is the gospel that changes people, it's the gospel that changes lives, it's the gospel that changes cultures. And the issue is, do we really believe it? Are we really willing to let the gospel uh, take hold of our thinking, change our thinking, change the way we live, so that we reflect your eternal principles and reflect your glory in our lives. And we pray that we might not take this lesson lightly, but may examine ourselves to see how we respond to the gospel in our day-to-day lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.